to 1 Kings. I'll tell you that in advance in case you're not used to digging around in your Bible. It'll take you a few minutes to find 1 Kings in the Old Testament. What we're going to cover this morning has already captured your attention, so it doesn't need much by way of an introduction. You've been introduced to this topic for months, and you've been hearing lots and lots about it. In case you're just waking up from a coma, let me share this with you. In her best year as a mortgage broker, Laura Glick says she made six figures. This week, she was one of more than 1,200 people attending a job fair and applying for one of 150 jobs paying between $7 and $12 an hour. CNN reports from Aurora, Colorado. CNN Money reports headlines, benefits on the chopping block. A growing number of companies are scaling back health coverage, among other benefits, to save money. Time magazine reports bankrupt Circuit City to be liquidated. MSNBC says Generation Y hit hardest by job losses. With the unemployment rate soaring, employees with the most to worry about are those under 30. They have the highest rate of joblessness of any group in this recession. Now those would just be, I don't know, two minutes worth of browsing, one day's worth of headlines. That's before I got home to watch the evening news. So my question for us and my concern for us is how are we handling the barrage of information that we are receiving about the condition of the economy and its impact on everybody, on ourselves, on people that we love, on our future. You You are being served up a daily dose of fear, discouragement, complicatedness, and all that gets filtered into our lives. And so somehow we have to sift through that. And I would imagine that even in the room here this morning, there's a variety of ways to respond and a variety of concerns. You know, I think about our senior citizens and those who are retired and are on fixed incomes. And and you watch oil prices leap out of the world and your energy bill goes way up and food costs go way up with that and everything you buy with transportation costs goes way up. And yet you're not getting a raise. You're not getting any more money. And you're having to figure out, okay, what's, what did that news just do to my future? What, what does this mean for me? I, I think of single moms in our midst who are working, seeking to be the sole provider into their household, you know, often just feeling alone and feeling the challenge of being the only person who's addressing the needs of the household in many ways. And then all around you, everything gets more expensive, and you are already doing a juggling act worthy of being the center stage of a circus to make everything work in your home. And every night you go home to hear this. Uh, you know, those of us with large families, you know, you start thinking through them. You live in a culture that's not just thinking about bare essentials. We're thinking about how do we pay for their weddings? How are we going to send all these kids to college? Right? I mean... And you guys with big families thinking about this? How are we going to feed all these kids? Right? I mean, that's with food costs going up. I and mean, we're starting to think, you know, which one do we eat first? Uh, no. I'm just kidding. Uh, 
We're going to start with the pets. We're not going to start with the kids. We've already discussed this at home. You know, whoever you are, however you're having to walk through this, there's uniqueness to your situation. You know, post-Katrina was an interesting world, but post-Katrina has put some of you in new jobs, and you're the new guy on the totem pole. And so if there are any layoffs and there's talk, you know, you're in a new position. You don't have the roots in that company, so you're feeling a little tentative. You're feeling a little concerned, a little scared about how to walk that out. So we are, we are certainly being affected here. Uh, and just, you know, even for those of you guys that are teenagers that are here, you're being affected, right? Quite honestly, in the economy that we've had for many years as a teenager, you don't know what it's like to live in a land without enormous amounts of disposable income. I mean, all of a sudden, not being able to do this and not being able to do that, you're liable to interpret your life as, is, you know, some... Terrible thing is happening to you because you just aren't able to do as much. And your family can't afford for you to do as much. So there's a reality here that that I have to figure out, you know, how is this affecting me and how am I responding to it? But I want to say this. These times are affording us some opportunities as well. And I want to benefit from those opportunities. I put in your outline two opportunities. One is an opportunity to look to God in a new way. That's an opportunity that we have. We have an opportunity in this season of our country, for however long it goes on, to look to God in a new way, probably in a way many of us have not had to look to God. Perhaps in our entire Christian walk. But today I also want us to realize we have an opportunity to re-examine how we've been looking to God and how we've been looking at God. Because I have a great concern, we're all tempted to do this, that we take our life events, we, inf- we inform and we put on the, the lenses that have been crafted in the back room. Our prescription lenses come from the events of our lives. And so when things go a certain way, we receive certain benefit, relationships are going a certain way, our bank accounts are a certain way, we're able to do this with a career, uh, we have this benefit coming to us, our health is a certain thing. All that stuff goes into the back room somewhere and lenses are being made. Prescription lenses are being made, and then we put them on. And not only do we look at life with those lenses, but we look at God with them. And we say, who is God? And this downturn, does it, does it affect your prescription lenses? You're seeing God differently. Does God all of a sudden become blurry to us? So not only do, how do we look to God, but how do we look at Him is an important thing. As well. Well, in 1 Kings, we have an interesting story here, an inspired revelation from God to inform us about something very important about who God is. And in the Bible, you don't have economic downturns that sound the way they sound in the evening news. Instead, you have something called famines, you have droughts. Those would be the economic terms of. The Bible talking about recession or depressions or those kinds of things. Droughts and famines. And this, this story here would be, if it had a title, it wouldn't be the Great Depression. It would be the Great Famine of 850 B.C. And you'd talk about it and you'd remember elements of it. So let's read 1 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, 
As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. <laughs> Don't you love that? Here, uh, Elijah, deliver the mail and then run for your life. <laughs> you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Lord, help us to see why you inspired this story to be included for our benefits here. Lord, you have done many, many things in human history. And you have chosen to record but a few of them. And this would be one of those stories. So, Lord, thank you for your word being a living word, God, that this morning, this word right now is traveling beyond our ears into our soul to feed us and to affect us because your word is alive. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are the one turning the lights on in our hearts to receive a living word, or may we receive the benefit of it into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll give you a quick little setting for this story. This is a story taking place in kind of the northern part of Israel, Samaria, the region. You know, Jerusalem's in the south, and up to the north you have the Sea of Galilee. And this is the northern part of Israel. The setting is about 850 B.C., which in your historic timeline, you know, you got the building of the temple. Remember that big event where Solomon built the temple? It's about 950 B.C. This is about 100 years later. And it's about 250 years before Nebuchadnezzar is going to show up and seize Jerusalem and deport everybody. So this is about where we are. We get introduced to a guy named Elijah, who we will eventually get to know him a little bit better. But this is where he gets introduced to us. A mighty, mighty prophet of God. 
and we're introduced to a widow in a land called Zarephath. And more than likely, she is a Phoenician widow. She's not a covenant person. Elijah is a covenant man. He is in covenant with God because he's part of Israel. But Zarephath is outside of covenant people. More than likely, she is not a covenant woman. And Elijah is going to come and pronounce a famine upon the land. Now, the question is in this passage, because he just sort of sounds like a guy taking license. Sounds like he got up on the wrong side of the bed with a wand in his hand and just said, I'm going to just, everybody, no rain till I say so again. Cranky. Um, More than likely, this would be important if you want to just turn back real quickly. More than likely, God is involved in a greater way. But we at least have some principle. Deuteronomy chapter 11. I just want to turn there to get informed for a moment. In Deuteronomy, God is rehearsing the law. Right? God has gathered to himself a people that he promised. He told Abraham, I was going to make you a people. He gathered them at Sinai and he gave them a revelation of himself. And he told them how to live, how to handle worship, how to deal with failures in the midst of them and sin. And he says, you know, I'm giving you this covenant. And I want you to keep this covenant. I'm going to bless you as my people. You're going to be uniquely my people amongst all the people of the earth. But he also informs them that there are consequences to your wrong choices. So it's not just a matter of, I I love you and I'm your God, but he says, I love you and I'm your God, and here's how you live before me. But if you choose to ignore what I say, there will be consequences that will come into your life. And we learn those in Deuteronomy 11. Let's just skip down to verse 11. They're about to go into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And so God says, this is an incredibly wonderful land that I'm sending you into. It's called, you know, the place where God's promises are going to be fulfilled in a real way. Verse 11, it says, but the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for, right? Who is God over this land? It is God who is God over this land. He cares for it. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year now now that's significant because when they get into the land they're going to learn about these gods that are there and these guys these gods die part-time during the year in the winter some of them die and a different god takes over and god's making clear that you understand through every calendar day of the year i'm not like those goofy gods you're going to learn about i'm always watching over this land Whether it's winter, summer, raining or not, I'm always watching over it. Verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock. You shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So into this land, God says, I'm going to send you and bless you. I'm the God over this land. But if you look away from me, if you allow idols into your life, then I will shut the heavens up and there will be no rain. Now, either Elijah simply has read the playbook and he's showing up and he's saying, hey, Ahab, God's going to make good on what he said. 
And if we serve other gods in this land, then God's going to shut the faucet off. And the moment he does that, there will be a famine in this land. But, he, you know, Elijah also says in this passage, you know, the God before whom I stand. So I think there's a little bit more here than just he read the book and showed up. Because he also says that it's not going to rain here until I give the word that it's going to rain. So I don't think he's taking that on himself. So I think God, God is revealing that he's about to do a famine in the land. Now, famine back in that day, famine would have been an economic collapse. The turning off of the water back in an agrarian society, would, not, would be somewhat like the in, in the industrial world if we ever ran out of oil. The world that we know ever runs out of oil and haven't come up with another source of energy, this world will become paralyzed. Well, that's what water was. Oil was not that to them. Water was that to them. And back then, they were more concerned because the water would fall with Grass would grow. Cattle would get fed. They were more concerned with cattle and the blessings that that brought than they were with cars and computers. The consumer index didn't mean anything to them. It just meant something if it rained. It just needs to rain here. Well, there is coming a famine. And famine on the earth is, it's more like shooting a shotgun at something than it is shooting a, a laser scope rifle. It's going to be broad and it's going to affect many, many people. Now, now remember, God said this back in Deuteronomy. So we shouldn't be thinking that the, the earth is somehow out of control. God took a vacation. He, he, he looked away from the earth and a famine broke out. See, because, you know, God's a good God. You know, God's a loving God. So would God ever do anything on planet earth that would bring discomfort like a famine? Well, God said that if there's ever a day where your hearts begin to be idolatrous, and you turn from me, I will turn the spigot off, and you will go into a famine. So it's very clear. All of us should be clear on this. And I I sometimes have to bang on these points, because if you're watching too much Oprah, have I been on Oprah enough lately? I don't know if I can be on Oprah enough lately. Actually, I saw Oprah the other night and watched Oprah Oprah wants to be spiritual now. Oprah's got life lessons going on now. Oprah's got a panelist of people. Oprah had one of her panelists the other night say that that, uh, gayness was a gift from God. She even did a double take on that. Being gay was a gift from God. She looked at the guy twice and said, well, I've never heard anybody say that. Well, she was more than eager to agree with it. Okay, now, I say that because you and I are just sitting here listening to stuff. Listening to stuff. And so the idea that God would ever do anything in anyone's life that's uncomfortable, that brought any sense of discomfort, that brought any sense of pain, it's like we've got a God that we we don't have room for that. That's not how God would operate. No, no, the, the, the Bible has spoken about God. The Bible has revealed God. This loving God says, hey, you want to inherit the love and mercy that I have? Well, then walk this way. Here, here, go. In Deuteronomy, it's a rehearsal. Before you go in, walk this way. And if you choose not to walk that way and you serve the idols of the land, this is what you're going to experience. So God's already said this. Into the land is going to come this large-scale famine, and it's going to affect a variety of people in a variety of ways. But I want to draw our attention to Elijah and to the widow because both of them get our sympathy in a way that you know some terrible awful person who's committing the vilest of sins who lives in the land who they're suffering we kind of can be okay with that but what about elijah what about the effect of famine on elijah elijah's a covenant guy elijah's god's prophet 
Elijah stands before God and he does whatever God says. If God says, go announce news to my people and then run for your life, Elijah, because they're not going to like what you have to say, Elijah does it. And he goes and does the right thing. And when he does and he brings word of the famine, the famine is going to come back on him as well. Look what happens to Elijah's life. Elijah, I'm going to relocate you to a different location. Matter of fact, it's going to be a little bit of a strange location because provision there, well, it's not going to be the smoothest. Of, you know, all the Walmarts are shut down already when you get there. And uh, birds, you know, with little Domino's pizza hats are going to be flying to your location and delivering food for you. I know that's hard for you to imagine. You've never seen that, Elijah, but trust me, I've commanded the ravens to deliver food to you. And you're going you're gonna to live off this little brook, Kareth, that is flowing there. It's going to provide you enough water for you to live because you're never going to see any rain. The ground is going to be dry as all get out. When you want water, you're going to have to go to this little brook there. So God sends him to this location. Right? I mean, listen, most of us, if we arrived at a location like that, if we didn't have this script being so clear, wouldn't you wonder whether you were out of the will of God? I mean, you get there. And provision is hard. And it comes from weird spots. I mean, you get there and it's kind of like, okay, I've never had birds show up with trays, you know. How do they fly? God, do they hold them with their feet? Uh, This is a foreign concept to this man. And yet he shows up and he is in the will of God. This is God's location for this man. And he's there for a while. And it's going to be a temporary stay. We keep reading the story. This isn't a permanent location. As a matter of fact, the permanency of it begins to get a little bit uncertain for him as he watches this brook, Kareth, that, I don't know, maybe it's about this wide when he arrives. And weeks go by, and he starts noticing it's about this wide. A few more weeks go by, and he notices it's about this wide. And now, I don't know how God revealed the next step to him, but aren't you getting concerned at this point? The brook is drying up. And maybe he doesn't have a word from God yet as to anything else that's going to happen. And he walks one day and it's, the ground is just damp. He comes back two days later and it's a dry bed. There's no water there anymore. The brook has dried up. And the word of the Lord comes and says, Elijah, go to Zarephath now. Now, how are you trafficking through that? You know, you've been sent to a location by God, and it slowly has become worse and worse and worse. Are you in the will of God? How do you interpret this event? It's temporary. Maybe he was there for a year, and then he moves. But God told me to be here. God, you told me this was the place to go, and look what's happened. I don't have any more water. What am I going to do now? Listen, you know, interestingly... As the whole country that we are a part of goes through recession and asks all kinds of new questions about their lives, you know, Katrina afforded us an opportunity to do some of that. And in this room are folks who God temporarily said, go over here. And, you know, this is a temporary relocation by God, whether it's temporary relocation into a new job or into another location, is a challenge. Because, you know, most of us have been doing something, the same thing for 10 and 15 years. And so we think if God's calling us to something else, we think, well, then I should do that next thing for 10 or 15 years. What if you get over there and a year later, all of a sudden that job goes away? Aren't you tempted just to say, I miss God? I miss God. God wasn't in this. Well, it could have been that God was in it temporarily. 
Could it be that God moved you out of New Orleans for two years to move you back here? And you're scratching your head going, what was that? Did I miss God? No, could it be that God moved you to the, to the brook Kareth? Because that was going to be where his provision was for you during that time. And then God moved you back here because that season was over and now you're on to the next location. So I think there's some lessons in here as we read the Bible sometimes. We just want to read it with, our, with the fullness of our hearts saying, God, look what you did here with a righteous man named Elijah. And, and then after he's been in this setting for a little while, maybe he gets used to it. He's, you know, he knows where the enemies are. He knows where the boundaries are. I don't want to get too far. Remember, he's the prophet running for his life. So he knows, don't venture too far over here. There's a village over here. If they get word that I'm here, I'm not, so I'm not going over there. God turns around and says, okay, now relocate to Zarephath. About 100 miles away, over on the coast, is a city that God now wants him to move to. And it happens to be in the very heart of Baal worship. Here's the prophet who's just kind of, he's pronounced God's turn the spigot off because of Baal worship in the land. And now God says, relocate to right in the middle of it. And so he goes there next. Now when he gets there, he's going to encounter another person who definitely has our sympathies. Right? The famine's been in the land for a while. And there's a widow with her son. So it would give us the impression this is probably not an older woman. This is probably a middle-aged, younger woman. And she has a son who lives with her who more than likely is a, just a boy. And so you have this scene where he walks upon this woman who is looking she's looking for sticks gathering sticks to go home and take the last morsels that she owns in her life put together the last meal all right this has been dwindling for a while so she really does know that that this is it and there's no other resources for her as a widow she would have she would have had very few resources as it was and now she's out. She's at the place where her retirement annuity has run out. There won't be another check coming. And you've seen it for a while. You know, you were with AIG or somebody and they went under and you're wondering where your next checks are coming from. A few more come and then they pronounce no more checks are coming. You will not be receiving the annuity retirement that you've been contributing into all these years. And her 401k is gone and all of her savings are gone. And she's about to spend her last dollar for her last meal with her son and is given over to the idea we're just going to die after that. Now listen, we read through that quickly, but this is a real person who walked through this in slow motion, who watched the day that it's, it's been a month since it's rained, not knowing what's going on around her. And things are starting to die and crops are not growing and animals are going to begin to keel over dead. And slowly, her life is going to shrivel up. And the inevitable begins to be, right? We're pretty good at vain imaginations, and we live in the air conditioning, right? Can you imagine what this woman's thinking? I'm not going to be able to provide for myself. I'm going to watch my son die. Because she's watched other people's sons die. She knows this is real. And the fear that's in her life... Because there's famine in the land, and the famine is touching people in real ways. That's her experience. Now, God is involved. God is involved in this experience. Now, I put in your outline, and I don't quite know how to relabel this, but famine would be part of God's economic stimulus package. 
God's trying to jumpstart the economy. Now, here's what's interesting about God. God has an agenda. The ultimate agenda in God always is that faith from man would be put in God and he would receive glory from our lives. That's what God is always up to. Always. So if God's going to invest in the economy, that's the end product he's after. He is after people taking their faith out of whatever it is they've got it in and putting it in him, setting their hope in God. So if God gets involved in stimulating the economy, that's what God is after. And what's taking place in this land is the need for God to stimulate faith away from the idolatry in this land and to put it in God. Now, what's interesting, when you find famines in the, in the land in the Bible, quite often they're, they're God putting a noose around the prevailing God of that land. And in this case, in the land of Canaan, the prevailing God would have been Baal. Baal and his female counterpart, Asherah. And so you would have traveled all over Canaan and you would have found shrines and places of worship and high places, as the Bible calls it, where worship of Baal was taking place. You know, Baal would have been, according to Mr. Unger, Baal was the farm god who gave increase to family and field, flocks and herds. Baal was a god of fertility. Baal was a god of increase. Baal could make you rich. Baal could make you prosperous. See, because he was the god of storms, so when rains fell, he was the god of rain. He brought the rain that brought the increase that caused the fields to grow. When your cattle reproduced and reproduced well so that you had an abundance of more cattle, it was Baal who was behind that. If you were able to conceive children and reproduce and have many sons who you could raise up a nice large family business out of, that prosperity was coming to you through Baal. And that's what they believed in the land. And next thing you know, the people of God are beginning to believe that as well. Remember God said, look, when you go into the land, be very careful. All right, if you back up from Deuteronomy 11 over to Deuteronomy chapter 7, God warned the people. He said, listen, I'm, I am sending you into this land. And it's, it's an abundant land. It's a land of great blessing. It's a land of milk and honey. Be careful when you get in the land and you begin to dwell in the cities that you didn't build. And you begin to benefit from the cisterns that you didn't dig. And there's all these orchards that you didn't plant and you just are reaping all the benefit. You know what God said? In that day, be very careful that you don't forget me. Very, very insightful. God knew. God knew in the day of abundance would be our greatest temptation to have displaced him. To no longer look to God, but to begin to look to that thing that's made our lives so comfortable. Begin to look for affluence and wealth and prosperity and success and begin to serve the God of the land in order to get those things. God was very careful in Deuteronomy to tell them, listen, when you get rain falling on the ground out there, remember, I'm the God who's watching over this land. All year long, I'm not like Baal who supposedly died in the wintertime and was resurrected in the spring when everything came back to life. Every year he went through that cycle. God said, no, every day I'm watching over this land. I give the rain when it's appropriate to give the rain. But God said, be careful. Because there will come a day when you will begin to experience the benefit of the land that I've provided and the rain that I'm providing. And then that day will be your most difficult day to keep your eyes on me. And to trust me. And you'll begin to look away from me. That's the condition 
when the great famine of 850 B.C. hits. If you just back up in 1 Kings, just a few passages there in chapter 16, verse 29. says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that would be the southern part of Israel, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, the northern part. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So this is a common issue. See, when, when the people of God began to prosper in the land that God had given them, their tendency was to look away from God and to look to something else. This is 850 B.C. Okay? If you travel to 750 B.C. and you read the book of Hosea, Hosea is speaking to the people of God, similar set of people, about the same issues. I put this passage in your outline. Hosea 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way. When does he think, do these things happen? When Israel is a luxuriant vine, when things are going well, in years of abundance and prosperity. Listen, the great challenge for us by nature, this is the warning of God going into lands of abundance. Be warned, people of God. When you get in this land and you amass for yourself resources that you can put your hands on, your temptation will be to look away from the source in your life. Now, all of us know this. We don't like to admit it because it, it would be potentially damaging to our comforts. But all of us know we look to God differently when we are needy than when we are not in touch with our need. If it's a health need, a relational need, a financial need, your prayer life changes when things get bad, doesn't it? You look to God differently. You sense your desperation differently. You know God's got to intervene. But when things are going well, sadly, that is not our posture, is it? We do not look at God the same way. And we do not look to God the same way either. If there's been a need in this country, in America, and this would be true in the church in particular, but especially in this country, uh, America needs an economic fix. It needs to have a stimulus package that would touch the faith of this country. Here's a very interesting insight from Craig Blomberg in his book. Listen to this. This This is just very interesting about how we live with our money. He says, it is astonishing to see what Westerners spend their money on. A survey of expenditures in the late 1980s and early 1990s demonstrated that Americans spend annually twice as much on cut flowers as on overseas Protestant ministries. 
Now, let me say why this is a significant comparison. Because what God is doing here on planet Earth right now before he turns the lights off and is done is the Great Commission. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. That's what God's up to. So if man wants to get on board, if man wants to use his resources, if man wants to use his time, if man wants to use his money in a way that's going to bring glory to God, then he's going to be a part of the gospel going throughout the earth. So that's why this is a significant comparison. So twice as much on cut flowers than on Protestant ministries overseas, twice as much on women's sheer hosiery, one and a half times as much on video games, one and a half times as much on pinball machines, slightly more on the lawn industry, about five times as much on pets. That's why we're going to eat ours. One and a half times as much on skin care, almost one and a half times as much on chewing gum, almost three times as much on swimming pools and accessories, approximately 17 times as much on diets and diet-related products, 20 times as much on sports activities, approximately 26 times as much on soft drinks, and a staggering 140 times as much on legalized gambling activities. Now, God looks upon America and sees, what do you value? Where is your faith? Whether it's in the pleasure of a stick of chewing gum or in dieting into the ultimate life or in the gospel going to the ends of the earth. What does man put his hope in? Meanwhile, the amount of American giving to charitable organizations of all kinds remains relatively constant at somewhere between 1.6 and 2.16% of a family's income. American Christians do only slightly better, averaging somewhere around 2.4%. I mean, this is the land that we live in that has found value, that has gone into Canaan, and God has said, be very careful that when you go into a land of abundance, that you don't forget about me. Welcome to America. A land needing some serious economic stimulus in the element of faith. But let me talk about famine and our view of God for a moment. When famine comes, what does it do to us? Do famines cause us to become confused about who God is? Right, we read the story. Did God fail Elijah? God is Elijah's God. God of promise. God of hope. And he has to run for his life. He has to relocate to a strange location where he's going to get provided for in the most bizarre of ways. He has to relocate again. And when he gets there, he's going to have to ask a widow who's about to eat her last meal and then die if you'll give it to me instead. Has God failed Elijah? How do you feel about how God dealt with the widow in this? What's your view of God when you hear this woman's out gathering sticks. She's been watching her world dry up. And she's about to eat her last meal that she considers to be her last meal before she dies. Now, how many of us are indicting God right now? God, you're wrong. You're wrong. And how do you trust a God who would do stuff like that? Might do stuff like that in your life. How do you trust him? I wonder if we had a tape recording of every person's thoughts. How many people the last several months, would say they're having a problem trusting God because their 401k plan is off 40%. You know, 
How do I? I'm just having a problem with that, man. I'm having a problem trusting God. I'm putting my confidence in God. I mean, I know I'm supposed to, but we're having a hard time, right? Question, when times are not plentiful and abundant, does it make us uncertain about trusting God? When we enter into a season where times are not plentiful and abundant, do we begin to question God's worthiness to be trusted? And this would be my concern about how it has been that we have been looking not just to God, but at God. What is it that has been informing us about how to trust God through these many years that we've been walking, many of us as Christians? Put a concern in here about the defining of God through circumstances and limited pop theology. Listen, the God that is in this Bible and revealed in this Bible... He is the same God. He does never change. Circumstances change. Bank accounts change. Health changes. God never changes. God is always of exactly the same worth and character as He has always been. From the foundations of the world before God created anything that was revealed to His creation, God was the same and worthy. When God put two people in the Garden of Eden in the most idyllic of conditions and they got to embrace and enjoy the creation of God, God was the same. He was the same two days after they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. God was the same. God was the same when David, under God's direction, was taking the people of God and expanding the territory and beating nation after nation after nation. He was on a hot streak. He was 10 and 0, wiping everybody out. He was the same in that moment. He wasn't worth greater value in that moment. And he wasn't worth less value when the temple that they celebrated and dedicated to God and finally built as an offering to God as a central location for the people of God to proclaim the greatness of God. God was not diminished the day Nebuchadnezzar showed up and destroyed the whole place and took all of God's people into exile. God was not diminished. God was not less. God was the same and worthy of our worship and our trust. And this is a bit of a challenge for us because I'm I'm very concerned with unknowingly we have allowed temporary circumstances and settings to go into the back room with our glasses and re-grind our prescription and put our glasses on and we stare at God and He becomes suddenly blurry because the stock market changed. Because it could affect our lives differently. Because we may not be able to buy that and we've gotten used to buying that. And we may not be able to afford that. And wow, you know, I'm concerned about retirement. I'm concerned about affording this thing. And now all of a sudden I take all that and I grind my lenses and I look at God and I go... I'm just having a hard time trusting God. Well, is that the way we've learned to look at God? We've learned to view God through temporary settings and circumstances and people and favorable events, whether that person responded to us favorably or not. Whether our return in finances is a certain way, whether our marriage is in a certain condition, that's who God is? No, no, that's not who God is. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm going to have to look at Him differently so that I may look to him in times like this. You know, something that is, is worth being aware of, I put in your notes, 30 non-typical years. 
Now, this would be the lion's share of most of our lives here today. It would be the centerpiece of what we have walked in and what we remember. And for many of us who have become Christians, we became Christians somewhere in the window of 1980 to present. So all that we have known of God has been drawn from that setting. Now, not just the setting of 1980 to present, but the setting of America, 1980 to present. So you and I stare at those events through 1980 to present. We start developing an idea about what's normal. What's the baseline for human experience that we should begin to assess good and bad off of, right? This is the baseline here over the last 30 years. Well, these events happen. This, This is bad. This is good. And we use this baseline of the last 30 years of experience. Listen, that's, that's not a good thing to do. The perspective of one of us who have been born in America, listen, this has been an oddball experience for the rest of humanity, for the rest of historic humanity. What we have lived in in the last 30 years should never be considered the normal thing that we will now define God based on that. Because if that's the case, everyone else will fail God in a moment. Because they haven't nearly experienced these bizarre lives that we've lived. I mean, we are, we are a people completely out of touch with the way the rest of the world lives. I mean, do you realize it's only four point something percent of the world speaks English? I mean, I know we think that everybody's just copying off of us and doing our thing. Do you realize that third world countries that most of us have never visited and we've never been around the people who live a daily life routine in that setting are nothing like what you and I experience? Do you realize the things that we've experienced in the last 30 years are bizarre historically? I mean, listen, home ownership, the dream of home ownership. Well, now, listen, it's not just a dream of whether you can own a home. Now the dream is whether you can buy one that's going to double in its value in the next 10 or 15 years. Right? I mean, real estate prices have gone out of this world. We live in a world, our little incubator world, where health issues are like nowhere else in the world. I mean, the pain relief that we have available to us, the access to to fine medical practices that we have all around us, the rest of the world doesn't live this way. It would be foreign to them to have such access. Speak to somebody who lives in a different culture than ours and ask them about the medical conditions that are around them. Listen, we're the oddballs here. You know, the, the life of luxury that we have. See, we begin to define God by how much luxury is in our life, not by how much necessity is in in our lives. My God shall supply all of your luxuries according to his riches and glory, right? No. My God shall supply all of your needs. Now, God's not wrong, and we're not wrong to enjoy everything that we have in our life that's beyond need. But if we're not careful... You know, if my luxury gets pulled down 10%, I begin to look at God differently. Well, quite honestly, the Bible never said that God would make you luxuriant upon this earth. Now, one day he will make you incredibly luxuriant. If you get a taste of that here, great. But the rest of the world ain't tasting it. And we've lived in this 30-year incubator. Let me give you a little stats here that will give you some perspective. The BBC reports in January of 2001, only 5% of the world's population has ever logged onto the Internet. Nearly all the users live in industrialized countries. I mean, we would think that if we can't afford to have our Internet access, where is God and his faithfulness? We had to cancel our Cox subscription. (laughs) I mean, you guys have come in for counseling sometimes, and sometimes you get in such financial straits that that we might suggest something as radical as that. Right? 
Can you, I mean, I'm telling you right now, you will walk out of the office thinking, these guys have two heads. What? Don't have a cable subscription? What? What? Cancel the internet? What? Yeah, join the other 95% of the world and don't do that. One billion people, that is a third of the world's workforce, are unemployed or underemployed. Right, listen, when our unemployment rate gets to 7%, I mean, it's in the news every night. Oh my goodness, it's 7%. Hey, join the rest of the world here. 500, this is staggering, 500 million workers are unable to keep their families above the $1 poverty line. That would be a dollar a day. Wage earners, where they're making less than $2 a day, that would be 83% of the folks in Bangladesh make less than $2 a day. In Vietnam, it's 64%. In China, it's 47%. In El Salvador, it's 58%. You can go on and on and on. People who make less than $2 a day. And they have to define God, too. They have to put on glasses and look at God, too. This is an interesting little experiment here. Look at the stock market. Everybody's watching the stock market. Right? Even if you don't own stocks. (laughs) Once you come home and you go, wow, the Dow fell 400 points today. (laughs) You don't own any stock. What do you care? Right? But it just it gets us low. Right? 1921 to 1929, the Dow Jones Index rose 504% up to 381. In 1929 and 1932, this is the years of the Great Depression, the Dow lost 90% of its value to fall below the 1921 level. All those gains had suddenly been lost. Now, just to give you a sense of perspective, if the Dow did that today, instead of being at around 8,000 and something, it would be at 1,400. Those of you who have invested in the stock market, it had gone from 14,000 to 1,400. Right, so it's, it's not too bad when you look at it that way. From 1980 to 2007, Right, this is our 30-year window. The Dow increases from 759. Look, that's not that much higher than 1929, is it? But in this weird little 30 years, it increased from 759 to 14,000 plus, almost an 1,800% increase. You understand? You and I have lived for 30 years in a very weird moment. Be very careful that God is not being defined by this weird moment we have lived in. Now, what's interesting, right as that has happened, personal debt, consumer credit debt rose 155% from 1990 to 2004. Home mortgage debt rose 201% in that same time. Bankruptcy filings were up 382% from 2004 as compared to 1980. Now, can you, can you get a hold of this? Because this is going to reveal something about our hearts. I'm not pointing this at anybody out there. I need to de- make room for this revelation right in here because, right, this is that secondhand smoke thing. I live in this country. I watch the news. I read advertisement. I watch ways of life. I develop an appetite for them too. Interesting, in this 30 year window, the most incredible prosperity has taken place. 18. 100% increase in the stock market. If you put money in the stock market in 1980, you were trying to figure out what on earth to do with all the return you were getting. If you bought real estate in the 80s, it went through the roof. So if you were part of a company, that company was experiencing incredible benefit, probably passing it on to you in some form or fashion. Salaries went up. Wages went up. 
So in the midst of all this incredible prosperity, why did debt go up so high? Because, if you haven't learned this about yourself, no matter what you have right now, you will always want more. And the more you can get, the more you want more. So if you had all this wonderful abundance, why have to borrow more and have 382% increase in bankruptcy? Because what I could get from that prosperity wasn't enough anymore. I needed more. And so I went into debt to get it, overextended, had too much fun, and now this 30-year thing is having the air let out of it. Now, quite honestly, I've not chuckled, and I've been eager to talk about this with you guys, but you know, it's been very interesting for me to see this is, you know, the... The way of life in America has sort of done this, pump this thing up, pump this economy up to where it runs at like warp speed. Now, the reason why it runs at warp speed and companies do so well is because carefully over the last 50 years or so, we have been trained and advertised into oblivion to want more. We have been trained to be consumers who consume at a hyper rate. Everything gets old to us very quickly. We've got to have a new thing, got to have a new gadget. It doesn't matter whether it works and serves the need that's in our life. But listen, you know how many companies would shut down if contentment just broke out in this country? <laughs> I don't know. I don't need that. I don't need that either. No, this works fine. No, I've got a lot of more miles left on this. You know, it's, listen, it would change the economy if that happened. So what ends up happening is, you know, the first round of economic stimulus was, We need to free up more borrowing, right? Remember that idea? We're going to have this big economic stimulus package, and we're going to give it to the banks, so the banks that are teetering on failure will be able to lend more money (laughs) so people can go out and buy more things that they can't afford to pay for. That's how we got here. Right? The dream of home ownership. Oh, you don't have any money? You can borrow 110%. Look, we know you can't pay it back, but we can borrow 110%, and you can own that home. Well, guess what? Now everybody's going bankrupt having to pay for things that they never could have afforded in the first place. See, this whole economy got blown up on greed and consumerism. Now listen, that is in me. I'm not from a third world country. I didn't grow up normally thinking that if I got a meal, maybe two that day, we did well. I didn't live in a village where people lived and died their entire life in that village. And they just learned that existence was a good thing. People were a good thing. See, no, here we have to climb corporate ladders or we're not happy. We have to be able to move from house to house and from this level of car to that level of car. You understand, we have new rules that we play by. Because in America, that's all normal. Listen, in the rest of the world, that's not normal. And so what do you do when you put on that lens and you look at God, who you now must look to God in a way? This God in America has been failing you, hasn't he? Because your luxuries are less. The extra in our life is being trimmed back. The future hope that we had to be able to retire early. Listen, the rest of the world never talks about those things. And yet God is God over them too. So we have this little weird thing we've lived in has produced some interesting fruit. I do want to make this point before I get ready to close here. Prosperity doctrines. This is a a great concern, but you're about to see a very interesting thing happen in this country. Should the economy continue to shrivel? 
It just so happens that even if you've been saved for a long time, you'll remember there's always been teachings in the Bible about prosperity. That's not new. Nobody reprinted the Bible. There's been teachings in the Bible about God blessing and an abundance of blessing and prosperity. But somewhere in the late 70s and early 80s, these doctrines got a life of their own. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted to promote them and talk about them. Listen, in my opinion, here's what happened. The next 30 years, there was a swell, a wave of prosperity coming to this country. And there were some teachers of the Bible who built surfboards on prosperity, and they surfed the waves. Now, listen, quite honestly, it wasn't just the prosperity people who believed those doctrines who prospered. All kinds of people prospered in this country in the last 30 years. People became unbelievably wealthy who didn't even believe in God. They prospered. But it just so happens that during that time, the health and wealth prosperity doctrines were being publicized. And people were being told, if you believe this, you get that. If you believe this, you get that. God wants you to prosper. God wants this for you, for you, for you, for you. And all of a sudden, our lens of God has changed. And what God is about, in a big sense, is lost amidst what God's about for me. Look, look at this thought David Wells put in his book. He says, a mailer from a church... In Mesa, Arizona, in 2006, read, Is your life everything you want it to be? You hear all kinds of offers of ways to improve your life, but do they work? God is offering you a way to make your life everything you truly want it to be. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm sorry, that is the most laughable statement. I can. God is going to stoop to my level? He's going to use this acorn inside of a, of a, a shell here. He's going to get advice from me, who's been living his whole life in America, believing that little trinkets and recognition from people is the most important thing. And he's going to give me that. The God of the universe, the God with all wisdom, the God who might be doing something different than populating my pocketbook, that God, he's going to give me everything I want. Is that the gospel? Is that the way Jesus sounded? Jesus ran people off who were looking for stuff. You remember that? Hey, you got, to, you got to eat. You're back. Great. What are you going to do when they want to take your life? You followed me for these reasons. What are you going to do when those reasons aren't there? He ran people off. That's not the gospel. Is drawing all of our attention to very little of the person and work of Christ and very much to the personal, bene personal benefits is a lopsided pop theology attempt at reading the Bible. It's terrible. If you want to talk, I'll put it in your outline. Just make this note in your mind. There's a difference between kingdom prosperity and personal prosperity. Is God a God of prosperity? Yes, He is. And His kingdom is going to be advanced and it's going to prosper. Now, how did the individual named Keith Collins fit into God's kingdom prosperity? Well, be careful how you think you fit. Right? How did Jesus Christ fit in kingdom prosperity? He did not fit for a moment by personal pleasure. He emptied Himself and left his prerogative of being God of the universe in heaven and took the form of a little lowly man 
strapped him. So can you imagine? This? See, you and I don't even begin to go here. The God of the universe who is unconfined in thoughts, in abilities, in space and time is going to lock himself inside this little space right here. And whatever it is he can see is what he can see. And what he can hear is what he can hear. And the Holy Spirit anoints him to go beyond those abilities, which is true for us as well. But Jesus Christ came to this earth, took the form of a man, and became obedient to God to to the point of being a servant. Not even a king. A servant to the point of death. Why? So that the kingdom of God would prosper. And the kingdom did. But he experienced incredible setback. So did Jeremiah, who faithfully proclaimed the word of God and got beat up for it, got thrown in jail, got deported to Egypt. Stood in the midst of a people because the kingdom of God was coming in that moment. So did the first century Christians who put their faith in God and they had their property seized and some of them were sawn in two and martyred. Was that prosperity? You better believe it was prosperity because the kingdom of God was exploding into the world. That was prosperity. Is Elijah experiencing prosperity? Yes, he is. Is it personally difficult for him? Yes, it is. But the kingdom of God is coming to the land of Baal, to the people who have put their hope in money and in things and in rain falling from some false god. And God's come to fix that. God's come to correct that. And the way he does it is to turn the water off. And Elijah is right in the midst of God's prosperity. Does our view of God change with the economy? Listen, famines... I'll put this in your outline. Famines are not outside of the providence of God. When they occur, God is up to something for his kingdom's sake. Listen, how many of us, let's get real here, church. How many of us have been praying for this country? God, let your kingdom come to America. God, bring revival to America. Listen, if God begins to answer that prayer, when he answers it in Canaan, he goes after the prevailing God of the land. And he grabs Baal by the neck. And he says, okay, you've been looking to Baal to provide your water for you? No more water. And if God turned and decided, I'm going to rescue this people, this country, you guys have been praying for America, I'm going to answer your prayers. And God reaches out and puts his hands around the God of this world. What do you think he'd be grabbing? I think he'd be grabbing the economy, wouldn't he? Because in this country, people have learned to put their hope in what their money can buy for them. Even the church struggles with that. So might it be that God is answering our prayers? And we're like Elijah. We have to live in the midst of God answering our prayers. Elijah does not get spared, does he? Jeremiah did not get spared. Jesus Christ did not get spared. It was uncomfortable to live in the kingdom's prosperity as God was doing his thing. Let me close with a couple of thoughts here. Okay, how did the... And you can go ahead and get ready to come back up here. How do the righteous survive a famine? Okay, guys, we're in the midst of this. And I'm not here as a prophet today saying the judgment of God has fallen on this country and God is squeezing the life out of the economy. I, I, you know, I don't have a word from God to tell you that's what he's doing. But I, I think observation would tell us there's a God in this country besides our God. He's being served by people and he's being served by the church. When somebody pulls out a statistic that says the church gives 2.6% of its income to the furtherance of the kingdom of God, the God of this world has grabbed us by the, th- by the th- throat. We're being captured without question. And God comes and says, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stimulate faith in this country. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring people from looking to things to looking to me. Don't you want God to do that? I mean, is that really the prayer and desire of the church to see God do that in this country? Well, here's how we survive, because we're going to live in that land, just like Elijah did. He lived in the land, and he experienced the famine himself. First, they don't trust in places, jobs, or favorable circumstances. Don't put your trust in that. If you're Elijah, you might be in this location for a year, and you might be somewhere else. Don't put your trust in that location. Don't put your trust in how wide the brook is when you arrive, and it keeps getting narrower and narrower. My job is, I had a pay cut. A pay cut at work. They're cutting benefits at work they're going to lay folks off right your your brook begins to dry up and you start looking at god you're going god you can't be god no elijah elijah experienced god in the midst of that it was drying up but god was god in the midst of that do not people of god put our faith in our jobs in our locations in people right elijah's provision comes from god god is going to provide even if god's got to provide for you by some strange means like ravens delivering pizza. If that's what God's got to do, God's going to show up in your life. You belong to God. He will take care of you. So don't, don't start believing that if God's got you in a place where it's difficult to experience his provision, that you're out of the will of God. It may be that what God is doing in the land around you requires that he will uniquely meet your need so that he can continue to do what he's doing around you. Secondly, how do the righteous survive a famine? They obey the word of the Lord, even in the face of lack. Now let me ask you, how much sense does it make? How much sense does it make? You're this widow, you've watched your life dwindle, and you have one meal left, and some stranger comes along and says, give it to me. The man of God, now she knows this guy's from God. Give it to me. Why? So I can die a few moments earlier? I don't have enough. Do you understand, dude? I don't have enough. Did you just hear what I said? I'm gathering sticks out here. I can't even make a fire, man. I've got a son to take care of. We're going to eat our last meal and die. And you say, give it to you? Do you understand? I don't have enough. Here's the wisdom of God. Before you meet your need, give it to me. And afterward, you will have enough. Now that is so counterintuitive. That is so counterintuitive to us. But, you know, if you've walked with God for any length of time, you've, you've long ago figured out the kingdom of God is upside down. The ways of God are absolutely different than the ways in which we think. Listen, if you're sitting down at the beginning of January, all this news has been getting to you, you sit down, you rebudget your household income, and you've got to cut 20% of whatever you're doing. How much sense does it make to keep giving 10% in a tithe? Doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, it does if you're looking to God to be your source. It makes perfect sense. Because I know if I give even out of what I think is lack, I'm an American, so my definition of lack is different than the lady who's dying here. I'm thinking, wait a minute. You know, I've got my budget thing. I've read my budget books. I know I'm supposed to be setting aside 10% for savings, and this much goes into retirement. It's amazing how we'll maintain, listen to me, 
things that are barely biblical in principle. Can you understand? Please find for me the retirement plans for these folks. That's an American thing. I'm not against retirement plans. I'm all for saving up for the future and being wise about those things. But listen, you know, the retirement plan in the Bible sounds like streets of gold in another location. And so, but, but we feel like I've got to keep, I can't tithe. I've got to give, I'm to, I mean, my company matches my 401k plan. Listen, listen, your company can't touch what God will do in your life when you trust him and give to him. Stop thinking that way. It's American. We're so American. We've been listening to Baal just like everybody else around us. And God is trying to rescue the church as much as he's trying to rescue this world from keeping living this way. Listen, I know it's very tempting when you go to balance your budget to say, I, I can't keep giving a tithe. Listen, I can't either. But I'm going to keep giving it. And if God's got to somehow send birds to land on my roof, I'm going to trust the God who delivers pizza through birds. If he's going to make my oil not run out, somehow things are going to last longer. I'm going to trust God in the midst of that. Now listen, I'm going to become more needy when I do that because my resources are going to go down. But when my resources get slimmer, that's when I start looking to the source in my life. Now, Now what a gift here. I want to close with this thought. It's the last statement in your outline. The good thing about a famine, we call it a recession here, is that it dries up our alternatives to God and forces us to look to God as our ultimate source and our ultimate satisfaction. Both our source and our satisfaction. we, We can't go out and buy all the trinkets that prop us up like we used to. We can't go out and entertain ourselves. You know, we're bored with life, so we go out and buy some toys. We go out and buy entertainment. Well, what if you can't do that? Well, might it be that God is trying to get us to be satisfied with Him? Not satisfied with the latest thing that entertains me, but satisfied with Him. And might it be that as my need gets higher and my resources get less, I have to look to God to be my source. And you know, really from the beginning, that's the way it's always supposed to be. When you enter the land, people of God, be careful that you don't forget about me. Let's stand up together. Lord, these issues, they have been tugging at our hearts for months now. They've been a source of concern for some, fear and anxiety for others, and maybe even desperation for some this morning. Lord, how good and helpful and comforting to know You never change. The God that we have trusted for our eternal lives, much less our temporary lives, is the same today as He was yesterday. As He is in other places of the world, as He has been before the world was created. God, You are worthy that we would be trusting You this morning. God, You are worthy that we would expect that You will care for us every need for every moment in our lives. You will never fail us, Lord. 
God, you are worthy that in the midst of perhaps prospering your kingdom and we are experiencing a setback, Lord, you will meet us in that. And you will provide all of our needs according to your riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That will remain true, oh God. God, thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. That's causing us to look to you in a way that perhaps we have been on vacation from doing in all of our prosperity. I thank you that you are on the screen again for us. God, forgive us if we have redefined you based on temporary experiences in our own lives rather than on your character that has been steadfast and is immovable. This morning, thank you for your inspired word that informs us about who you're going to be to us in this season of our lives. This man's going to lead us in a song, but I, I, I feel like there may be some folks here that uh, this last few months for you has been a challenge exceedingly, full of fear, lost view of God, struggling greatly because of how future financial concerns are touching your life. You know, I prayed for you guys this morning, had a word from one of the guys this morning as well, about the God of all comfort. God wants to come near to you this morning and comfort you and give you assurance. And I believe that that has been imparted through the preach word of God, but I believe also the Holy Spirit just wants to touch you in a way that would help your heart to receive that. So if you're here this morning as we sing this song, I want to ask you to build a bit of an altar here this morning. I want you, I want you to come forward. I want you to confess your fear to God. I want you to leave it here this morning. I want you to get something from God so that you walk from here with a sense of, okay, God, you're, you're back in focus before me. I'm not afraid. If you're not ready to leave here today unafraid, then you need something more from God. I want to invite you to do that. So, so don't delay. Come on down. Come stand up here. And if, you, if somebody's here this morning and you feel led to come pray for some of these guys, just come lay your hands on them. Let the power of God come. Ignite faith. You know, get, faith is a gift from God. It's a gift of faith. And sometimes when we're full of unbelief, we need the gift of faith. We need the supernatural working of the Spirit to stir up and plant in us faith to believe God in an unusual way. So if this morning you just need to receive that from God, come. Come and receive comfort from God. Come and receive His care. Come and receive His assurance so that you're able to leave here with a sense of confidence. God is with you. This famine stays in the land for I don't know how long. Another year. Another five years. For the rest of our lives. God will be God, guys. God will not be different to us. He will be the same God who created this whole place. He will be every bit sufficient for us in that day. So go ahead and come as Matt leads us. Let's turn our attention to the Lord and receive grace and comfort from Him. If you feel led to come pray, please do that.
sing it again. Okay. 